Hello, and welcome to Breaking Protocol. I am your host, Bob Sadowick. Today, my guest is Kai Von Schrock. Kai Von is a Democratic political strategist, commentator, and organizer. He serves as senior advisor to the Institute for Education, a leading D.C. nonprofit. Before joining the team at IFE, Schroff worked at Microsoft New York on their technology and civic engagement team. Partnering with the NYC government and nonprofits to offer data driven solutions to big social problems. Kaivon also worked on the digital team at Hillary for America. He holds an MBA from the Yale School of Management and a BA in political science from Brown University. Welcome to Breaking Protocol, Kaivon. Great to be with you, Bob. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you here today. And you know, We've got a lot of stuff to get to, so I want to just start off right in the deep end of the pool, so to speak. In my recent podcast, I have featured what I refer to as a new generation of progressive leaders, one of them being Margaret Croak, who is 28 years old and recently won a seat in the Illinois State Legislature, a gentleman by the name of Clayton Tucker, who is 29 years old and is running for a seat in the Texas State Senate and most recently, Mayor Alex Morse from Holyoke, Massachusetts, who is 31 years old and running for the U.S. Congress. You know, there are an equal number of new generation leaders also running in the Republican Party. I would like to know what your thoughts are on the new generation of political leaders in the country. And do you expect that we can see greater participation for those under 30 at this level of government? And what might be prompting that interest in the political arena? Absolutely. So I think there's a a few effects at play here. I think probably the most obvious um, and visible is what AOC has done. And I think she's really revolutionized the way that my generation and younger generations um, have engaged in the political process. I don't know if you've had time to check out some of her uh, Instagram stories, but they've gone viral on Twitter as well because people are sharing them. They're just so informative and um, engaging in a way that I don't see any other politician doing. So I think that certainly has had an effect and I give her a lot of credit for that. I also think probably a little more cynically, the whole Trump administration and people watching what's happening in politics right now has really lowered the regard for sort of any type of merit-based or experience-based political process. So I think if you're smart and you're ambitious and you're sort of excited about making an impact and changes in these things, instead of thinking, oh, here's my 20-year plan and one day I'd love to run for Congress, you're like, oh, all these randos and sort of unethical people with no qualifications are being propped up. And I think certainly more on the Republican side of things, I would say. But, um, you know, I think I think that's a little bit of an effect, too. And then there's also a lot of organizations like I know a leadership from the Hillary campaign that created run for something almost immediately after the campaign, which is focused on sort of getting young people to run for office, training them and sort of removing barriers to access of the political process, which I think is a huge first step, like, and even considering um, matching people with local offices that people maybe wouldn't even think about, and just increasing the pipeline, both um, with a lot of diversity and some younger people. So I think a lot of those efforts are working together. How much has social media played into the dissemination of information that has driven this new generation to become participative in politics? Oh, I think majorly. And I'd actually say um, 
for better and worse, it's it's very hard to verify who somebody is on social media and what they have done or haven't done. And it's really easy to get a platform. And I think there's a lot of people who are quote unquote influencers or speak out on a lot of these issues without necessarily having a, a, a cohesive understanding of of the issues. And it's very easy to succeed on social media without getting into depth because the whole point is to make it a boiled down sort of sentiment. And so I, I do think that's been a major factor. I think it's been a, a negative, of course, in, in the last five years we've seen um, social media be very, very harmful. And I think that the, the leadership of different social media companies and the press, I think together, when you think about social media and journalism, we're in a disaster scenario because we have the wrong people. I think we have a lot of good ideas, but I really do think the people who have ended up being in DC press and also sort of middle to upper management at social media companies, it's not diverse. The background is really not people who are understand social issues. They, they might be very good at the one thing that they know or do. Like actually I had the, the privilege of hosting Jack Dorsey at Brown um, when I was a uh, had a lecture board there and we we talked to him just sort of this must have been like 2014 before Twitter was you know kind of as relevant to politics as it is today and I was like Jack like what what do you want people to be doing with Twitter like you know Instagram at the time was way more popular and still is but it's so obvious like you upload a picture you want your friends to like it what do you want people to do with Twitter and he really he did not have an answer to the question and I just thought it was shocking and he kind of tells you the story of how the character limit on Twitter was based on like the texting limit characters back when and he's a tech guy and that's how he came to this position but the idea that a tech guy is suddenly going to evolve into somebody who should be controlling one of the most important information platforms and thinking about all the factors and ethical issues and end results of decisions is, I don't think, I think that's a hard sell. And I think it's too much of an ask, but it's also really irresponsible for somebody like Jack or Zuckerberg or any of these people to take that on. They're, they're not equipped to handle the problem and it's doing major damage to the country. Do you feel that they have an obligation, a responsibility to actually ensure that their platforms and the information that's being disseminated on those platforms is accurate? Absolutely. I, I do. I mean, I think that obviously these are private companies. So just as any other private company, I think that it's up to consumers and regulators to control what happens. But I absolutely think that the buck stops with them. And I think major credit to Kamala Harris, who I think quite early was on this issue in 2019 and during the primary debates and several other times, I believe she said that Twitter was not adhering to its own policies in refusing to suspend Trump's account because he does incite violence from there. And the hate is one thing. And I think that's equally bad. But I mean, he's literally the president of the United States using this platform to encourage violence against Americans. I mean, it's it's pretty shocking that you would be the head of a company like that and not want to do something about it, especially when you have billions of dollars. So I think a lot of that is a result of their resistance to wanting oversight and governmental regulation on their platforms. You worked for the Hillary Clinton campaign. Uh, you had some experience there. Prior to the Hillary Clinton campaign, you've obviously been very interested in politics and policies and public service for quite some time. Let's back up a little bit. And what inspired you? What what initially lit that fire in you to want to participate at this level as a new generation leader? 
Of course. So I grew up in uh, Westchester, New York, suburbs right outside New York City, um, where actually my parents had gone to the public schools there 50 years before. And I was born and raised in that community. And it was just such a close knit, diverse, supportive place. And when I got to, to school, I think I was really taken aback, or maybe less taken aback on an intellectual level, but actually engaging with and experiencing so many different backgrounds and really the lack of support that I think so many people had and just being in an environment with people who were trying to do every single thing they could, but still because of so many structural factors, unable to overcome them. I actually entered school wanting to do, I think, advertising or something like that. And then that really felt personally empty to me by the end when I was graduating. I actually wanted to go straight to business school because I had spent some time in DC through summer internships. You know, it's interesting. Your generation has always had social media as a foundation on which you build your communication platforms. You have to keep in mind, and I'm sure you discovered this when you were doing internships in D.C., that political parties and politics has really only been engaged in social media for the past eight years. And you take that and combine it with the fact that the wheels of progress in government turn extremely slow. Uh, the expectation level that your generation may have might be a little overstepped. <laughs> well, what, what, I'll, what I'll say, because I've certainly heard similar um, sentiments before, I do think the Obama administration dropped the ball on social media. I think that they got a lot of praise in 2008 for sort of being early and using Facebook and doing all these cool, interesting things. And then they won. And then they kind of stopped doing all those cool, interesting things. Like, why wasn't President Obama tweeting important information to the American people all the time? Like, that would have been a great communication tool and actually might have even set a precedent of how to do it really appropriately and well. And so I, I, I think some of those things, they're, they're missed opportunities. And I also think the big problem Democrats have, and I don't mean this to sound disparaging in any way, but it's, you know, things evolve, social media evolves. I'm already feel like I'm being phased out and I have to just start a TikTok because I like don't want to not understand how that works. But, you know, I think the people that ran the Obama digital stuff in 2008 were college graduates who were sort of plugged in and trendy and cool and understood, but it was still very niche to be on Facebook or social media in that time. And then social media became very mainstream and everybody had Facebook and suddenly you kind of had these techier, nerdier, now 30-ish year olds trying to run and do and manage all that digital content and social media and be engaging. And it's like, it was one thing I would always ask the senior Clinton people who would be so nice and take time to, to chat with me is like, how much reality TV have you watched? Have you watched any? Like, have you done any of that stuff? Like, I binge watch so much reality TV. And it's alarming to see how that plays out exactly the same with Trump and all these political debates. I mean, because that's, it, it's about the last thing said. Like you can literally watch a reality TV show where an episode last week, you saw somebody do something, but you like the person, they're funny and sassy. And the next week they literally just lie about it. And you, you that's what that's what our generation has been raised on. I feel like content like that, where it's really much more about entertainment. So I do think that was a an issue, but I think that either the Biden team has done a good job sort of uh, updating. Yeah, I'm not sure some of those initiatives in uh, reality television and politics necessarily align for the benefit of the majority of the American people. But with that said, I want to move to something I heard you address a few months back on a 
a television show in Boston, and it was about motivation, candidate motivation. And you you were discussing Elizabeth Warren and her ability to motivate her constituents. There was a debate amongst the panelists about whether it's the candidate's job to motivate and unify the party. And I think that pretty much was the consensus of the panel. But I would question, once a primary has taken place and we have a nominee, is it not the job of the members of the party to unify themselves and get in line? Well, I think it's less of an either or and more of a both and. Like, ideally, Democrats are going to, and I think we, we're seeing tons of them do this, all People are volunteering, making calls. People that were never engaged uh, are getting the Joe Biden app and texting friends. So I've seen a lot of that from people that just five years ago or even two years ago were so much less engaged um, just on anecdotal level. But I I think that um, it is up to the party and the candidate to to sell people on their ideas and explain why they are the right choice. I, I, I also do have a problem, though, with people who expect unrealistic things because at the end of the day we have to win we really that is the point of this and i think it's a little immature to not understand that that you win with a coalition and so the way that that is built is by having a broad spectrum of stances and ideas and being inclusive i think that's the power of the biden campaign right now is that it is a broad tent and and i think the dnc succeeded at at conveying that message last week where it was like from john Kasich all the way to the left welcome and be part of this with us and defend the country and stand up for our baseline core values and then let's get to the debate about whether 80 percent of people pay this much for healthcare or whatever. You know, those details absolutely matter. What are the issues that millennials and new generation leaders are focused on today? What are the organizational initiatives that you're aware of that are going to meet the expectations moving forward for progressive candidates? So I think um, my generation has consistently demonstrated that it's the social issues that are driving turnout. In 2018 alone, I believe millennials something like doubled voter participation. So I do think that just a backlash to Trumpism period is going to um, drive turnout. But part of that backlash is about all these social issues and rights that are being trampled on and sort of rhetoric that is so dismissive and exclusive. So I think those issues are really firing people up. I think that uh, reproductive rights are on the table. I think that people are thinking more and more about the courts and understanding that a little better. I also think social media, as we were talking about before, has been a powerful tool in educating people on some of these issues uh, in a much more sort of accessible way. You know, Donald Trump has utilized minority populations, specifically Black and Muslim Americans, as a tool to stimulate fear in his base. He specifically, as you mentioned, calls has called for violence against those who don't agree with him. He refers to protesters as thugs and terrorists. He has literally attacked every minority female member of Congress. Yet there's a generation of voters who believe that Ben Sherman and Charlie Kirk and Stephen Miller are insightful and share a message of truth. Should social media platforms be held responsible for the oversight of the information, the false information that they are disseminating? 
I think at a minimum, they shouldn't be verifying people that are sharing false information. And I know that Twitter has consistently tried to defend this, saying that we're verifying that it's the person who it is. I don't think that's how people have processed what verification means. And I don't think it's valid to keep saying that from something they came up with a decade ago. At the same time, I don't think that they should censor speech. It's obviously a delicate balance. I think that people that are sharing things that are dangerous information, as we've seen with sort of disinformation around coronavirus, I think they need to treat that much more seriously. And I think some people, some some um, platforms have taken some positive steps. I think Facebook is consistently the worst at this and they seem uh, disinterested in doing anything about it. I think that also some of these voices are going to exist, whether they're on social media or they're on the radio or they're on Fox News. People are looking for sort of to play this blame game to eschew responsibility for any of their own personal failings and dump that on immigrants, dump that on Obama, dump that on Biden, whoever Trump names that day. And I think it's a message as old as time that I think we're seeing mostly white males, like you named Charlie Kirk, etc. It's a message that's so convenient. It, it's forgiving to people who are not happy with uh, the choices that they've made or um, the s- scenario that they face. You know, it's interesting. We have picked on a little bit on social media, uh, but I don't want to overlook traditional media. You know, in my opinion, traditional media often fails to accurately describe situations that involve minority oppression in the U.S. And I'll give you an example. When they speak of the death of George Floyd, which has sparked a huge movement in this country for equality, and to raise awareness around oppression. When traditional media mentions George Floyd and the death of Breonna Taylor, who died as a result of a police shootout, they use terms like incident, and they describe it in a uh, benign way. The reality is George Floyd and Breonna Taylor were murdered. They were murdered. And George Floyd was actually murdered on videotape. Why is traditional media not disseminating the reality of a situation like a George Floyd murder in a more aggressive approach? Yeah, so I totally agree with you. And thank you for saying it that way. I I think that, again, that two things. One, as we discussed earlier, I do think there's a people problem in traditional media. I don't think that these are the people that should be the gatekeepers to information at this point in in the nation's history. It's it's just not what we need. They're not up to the task. And I think every time we see the White House press corps go in and really fail, fail the American people, I think again and again. And I there's standout moments. There's those breakout stars who get into a viral fight every one-off, but that's not enough. And I think that whether it's issues of police murders or or issues like yesterday, I was on Twitter following coverage of the RNC and so many, and again, it's typically 30 to 50 year old white male reporters, but from really prominent institutions and with massive followings, they were like, you know, oh, wow, Nikki Haley sounds so great, just like pre-Trump and Tim Scott, what a future. And it's like, to them, there's no context. Like they can't take that in the context of like, these are two minorities on stage 24 hours within Jacob Blake being shot seven times in the back in front of his three kids, whatever you want to bring up as the critically relevant context that makes all of this insane and absurd. They, they choose not to see that. I think 
part of it is just DC culture, actually, I have to say, because it's the same journalists who want to go to some embassy party and want to go to an administration thing. And, you know, the number of, I actually, through um, the Institute for Education, I'm able to go to some of these great events. And, you know, I mean, it's a little jarring at first when I was getting into the DC world to see that journalists really are eager to come to sort of the DC socialite scene. And that's part of their job. But I mean, they're also socializing there. That's how they do that. And I think the sort of access journalism that's developed, like, you know, I think people gave a lot of credit to Jonathan Swan for his recent Trump interview. But I think it's critically alarming if the game and the incentive structure we create is that pass along, play along, be best friends with like sort of this awful administration for three or four years. And then as they're on their way out, kind of wham them. And we were talking about reality TV. I think that's what's happening. And so that's terrible. And that's not good journalism. And that's not helping the American people. So I I do think that they're normalizing a lot of this um, because I do think they don't have the tool set or education to manage it. Again, I do think journalists should have more exposure to sociology and all these sort of issues that the country faces. But I also think the incentive structures for their business models are not not great. Yeah, let's speak a little bit about specific policies that, in my assessment, the Trump administration has failed horribly on. And one of those is healthcare. And the interesting thing about healthcare in the United States is that healthcare is a right to those who have employer based healthcare. At the same time, depending on who you believe, there have been 40 million people filed for unemployment since the pandemic has started. Private healthcare is not affordable to the unemployed. And what solution would a Biden administration need to provide? millennials and new generation voters with the viable information necessary to create a concern about this issue with with that constituency group? So I do think that millennials have talked a lot about Medicare for All, and that's a major issue, especially for sort of the the more to the left side of millennials and all sort of the, the Bernie crew type people. At the same time, I think we're not really having an articulate conversation about it because they have muddled the meaning of so many of these policies. So Medicare for all today certainly does not mean what Medicare for all meant six years ago or whenever sort of people really started talking about what's more, I think the um, Medicare for America probably version that uh, has been put out recently, things like that. So I do think a lot of times we're missing each other in the conversations we're having about these issues. That's one key problem. And I do think that Bernie Sanders and others have engaged in dishonest politics. You know, in, in past years, they have sort of miseducated people about how some of these things work, how the logistics and funding worked, how the reality is going to be. And I, and I don't want that to be viewed as an attack on the idea of getting everyone universal coverage, because I think every Democrat agrees with that issue. I think everybody wants universal coverage. It's about how we get there and what's realistic. And I think saying that, well, we need to get there tomorrow, as opposed to we need to get there as fast as humanly possible, but we need to get there in a way where the train doesn't come off the tracks is a much more responsible way of doing it. And I think that the um, Biden-Harris administration will be well-positioned to accomplish that and build on Obamacare. I certainly don't think we should scrap Obamacare and start over, as some have suggested. So I think that people are really engaged on this issue as a topic. I think that it's, it's important to keep talking about, but I, I certainly would hope that we don't allow it to be the divisive issue that I think some people would hope it is. You know, you mentioned earlier 
the policy that pertains to abortion and the right to life. What is your perception of evangelical Christian voters who support Donald Trump strictly based on pro-life positions, yet they turn their back on children being locked in cages on the border? Absolutely. So personally, I I find it to be a convenient uh, way to say that you want to forgive Trump for sort of all the massive sins that, you know, you list on and on and say this is your one issue and that's why you're doing it and you're not a racist and you're not homophobic and you're not all these things. I think that it's it's totally inconsistent and invalid. I mean, certainly we've seen 180,000 Americans die of coronavirus, you know, kids in cages aside. So I think that that's not a pro-life activity that just happened. So I think that, of course, it's inconsistent. I, I, I kind of am a little bit hesitant to take a lot of conservative arguments, frankly, as at face value, because I, I don't think that that is where people are arguing from. I don't think they're trying to be logically consistent. I think that they're very, very indoctrinated. And as you can see, I mean, somebody like Jerry Falwell Jr. was a major figure in that movement is a, is a massive liar and just a, a hateful person who's been able to sort of just like Trump be a demagogue who's able to say and convince this group of anything. And, I, and it's it's very sad, I think. And unfortunately, I think that book, Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance was sort of picked as the book of 2016. And I think it was a pretty bad book when you consider it in retrospect, because he basically is able to write this entire book without mentioning race. And the way he does it is he talks about sort of how these communities are resentful and they don't trust the government and they don't trust the media and sort of explains that it was because his grandparents' generation didn't do all the things that immigrants were doing when they came here. They didn't make the smart transitions or invest in certain things. And so he explains that part. But then he, like I think a lot of Republicans do, he attributes all his own personal success to himself, whereas he benefited from the GI Bill. He, you know, so many things you can list. And yet they don't see the same issues as relevant when you talk about racial justice in America and items like that. And I think that it really is just kind of saying whatever you want and whatever will benefit you. Well, I will. I would agree that that was the book of 2016. And as an author myself, I have to say that that entire book is filled with nothing but hypocrisy and self-serving privilege. I'm so happy to hear you say that. I actually haven't heard many people respond that way. So it was just... (laughs) I, I was mad at myself, quite fr- frankly, that I even read the thing after I read it. It, it was just, uh, anyway, th- that aside, moving on. Um, and actually, just, a, sorry, interjection, no, yeah. fun fact, I actually, Jen Palmieri uh, one time was saying what was the book that she relied on to sort of understand populism at that moment. And that wasn't the book she said. She said The True Believer by Eric Hoffer, which actually was incredible and um, really did articulate. Well, I'm reading Strangers that. in Their Own Land right now, which cool. is fantastic. I don't know if you've read it, but it's really I have. I had some Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I'm typically reading three or four books at a time, so... I'm kind of I'm kind of working through uh, working through that one. Let's talk about coronavirus for a minute. You brought that up. Clearly the topic of the year. In my view, coronavirus is not something that's magically going to go away, uh, probably to the chagrin of Donald Trump. Coronavirus is here to stay for the foreseeable future. We're going to be dealing with this for three to five years. And we need a three to five year plan, not just from a government approach, 
but a private sector approach as well. Yet, with that said, we've returned to school. A lot of colleges have opened. A lot of your colleagues and uh, folks within your age group are returning to college and returning to their general practice of socialization. And it is developing this enormous, enormous outbreak around college campuses. Why is this generation not taking this virus seriously? Okay, so I am going to flip that on you because I think that who's making the decisions to have bars and restaurants and schools open? It's certainly not my cohort of individuals. And so I think behavior is pretty inevitable. We know that if we open schools and we do all these things, if you're inviting all your freshmen back, why are you doing that if all your classes are virtual? It's so that they can socialize and hang out. So don't do that if you don't think that's productive policy. And it might not be, by the way, but I think it depends, of course, on your location. But I mean, I think a lot of people are uh, considering sort of short-term economic and PR factors when, when they're making these decisions. And those people are the adults, honestly, not people like me who sort of are responding to those decisions. So I, I think, I mean, I do think also our generation does feel to sort of add some credibility to your point does feel a little cheated honestly like we're in our you know 20s and early 30s and sort of the world has gone upside down and we're stuck in you know in our little apartment or wherever back home with parents uh what what's supposed to be you know the prime of life and i think there's a lot of blame probably to be placed not on us again because we weren't the ones making those decisions and i do think that's how it's perceived at least well, just let me share this. Each yes. generation gets cheated out of something. I agree with you, Kaivon, that this generation has been cheated of their high school graduation, their college graduation, their freedom of being a freshman on a college campus. But how do we disseminate a message to the generation that this is such a small sacrifice on the scale of life to make? Absolutely. And sorry, but to to reiterate what I was um, trying to convey, yes, people feel cheated about graduation and missing all these things in the coronavirus moment. I think this is sort of the cap off of a decade of crisis, honestly, where everyone graduating with a college degree that was told this is the access to success in America is not getting a job. And all these other factors are at play. And then you add this as, as sort of the icing on the cake and people are like, whatever. I think it's really hard to expect everyone to be able to do that. First of all, not everyone has the environment to sort of socially distance for forever and not engage people. I think it's hard to argue that if you're fine to go be a waitress at work and serve everyone and expose yourself to coronavirus that way, then then we're going to shame that same person for grabbing around at the restaurant after work. I think obviously there's a line and ideally everyone would be able to follow it, but really it's the responsibility of good government and good leadership that we're totally lacking. And honestly, I think some some uh, some information dissemination that we could improve, whether it's via social media platforms. Um, I think the burden's on, on that. So before we wrap up today, is there any insight that you can provide our listeners from the new generation perspective that we need to be concerned about and that we need to address that we're not addressing. Being a real person, showing people that 
is engaging and it is exciting and it does inspire people to want to take an action so much more than a canned speech or sort of a condescending lecture about civic duty. And I think that that messaging has been really powerful and will continue to be for our generation, which has lived our, our lives online and very publicly. Thank you, Kaivon, for joining me today on Breaking Protocol with Bob Sadowake. I really do appreciate you taking the time to join me, and hopefully your 100,000-plus followers uh, on social media will also join us in the future. I want to wish you the best of luck in all your future endeavors. And if you did enjoy today's podcast, please click and subscribe for notification of future episodes. And if you haven't had an opportunity to read my book, Breaking Protocol, Forging a Path Beyond Diplomacy. It is available for purchase at your favorite online retailer, or it can be downloaded to your Kindle, tablet, or smartphone. I appreciate you listening, and many blessings.